0: There are a few areas of human existence not touched by folklore and superstition, and unsurprisingly, burials and funerals come with a whole raft of beliefs and practices. Some of them persist to this day, while others, like Sin have largely died out. But who or what is a Sin What does the practice involve? And how did a person become a Sin in the first place? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. This is our penultimate episode in Freaky February. And next month, we're going to be having a look at the folklore of fortune telling. So I expect all kinds of shenanigans related to divination in March. We are going to have a look this week at the Sin I was talking about this with someone on Twitter, I think it was, a few months ago. I realise there's not really that much information out there on them, so I thought I would do a post on them. And let's be honest, there are few areas of human existence which aren't touched by folklore and superstition, and there's an absolute raft of it around burials and funerals and all the different customs that you have to follow. And obviously, we looked at some of those last week in the cemetery superstitions and also some of them in the premature burial episode a couple of weeks before that. And while some of those customs and superstitions persist, some of them do die out. And despite the practice of sin-eating apparently lasting from the 17th to the early 20th century, there is surprisingly scant evidence of it. And it seems that the sin-eater has basically crossed the reality barrier into fiction. He, because it's nearly always a he, pops up in video games, TV shows, books and films. But who or what is a sin-eater? What does the practice involve? And how did a person become a sin-eater in the first place? These are just some of the things that we're going to have a look at in this week's episode. So what is sin eating? The practice was actually very simple and mourners would pass food over the body of the deceased. Obviously, this is in the days when people would actually have the body for a week in their house. And sometimes people might place food on the corpse's chest and either way, it was believed to absorb the sins of the deceased. Most accounts seem to agree that bread was the favoured food and by eating it, the Sin Eater basically took on that person's sins and then they continued to carry that person's sins along with all the others that they'd eaten. And I'm not entirely sure what would happen if another Sin Eater then ate theirs, whether you'd end up with some kind of super Sin Eater, but that was probably just a weird imagining on my part. Now, the practice seems to have begun in the 17th century and the first records appear in the late 1680s and it was most common in Wales and then all the English counties that border Wales and it did last into the very early 20th century. Now, writing in the 1680s, John Albury wrote about a remainder of the custom in Oxfordshire and I quote, where at the burial of every corpse, one cake and one flagon of ale just after the interment were brought to the minister in the church porch, end quote. And he also noted the practice in Herefordshire where mourners would hire poor people to take on the sins of the deceased. And they would pass a loaf of bread and a bowl of beer over the corpse after it was brought out of the house. And the sin eater would then eat the bread and drink the beer to take on the dead person's sins. And this apparently freed him or her from walking after they were dead. Now, in the 1890s, a field collector of folklore actually recorded a transcription of a belief that drinking wine at a funeral meant you were taking away the dead person's sins with every drop. So here, it wasn't just beer, and it was also the idea that everybody who was drinking wine at the funeral would then be sort of partaking of this particular custom, not just a single individual. Now, Ruth Richardson points out that wakes often involve food anyway, And in medieval times, the rich gave food to the poor before a funeral. And they did so to encourage the poor to pray for the dead person to speed their passage through purgatory. Now, obviously, this is before the Reformation. This is when people were still following Catholic customs. And it was the fact that if you want to get through purgatory, you needed more people to say prayers for you. That's why rich people would leave so much money to the church in their will to get monks or vicars or whoever to then pray on their behalf to get them through purgatory quicker. So the idea of the rich giving food to the poor before a funeral already starts to make that link between sort of food and death, really. And Richardson also notes the confused relationship with the sacrament in the case of ritual eating beside a corpse. And Ingrid Harris agrees and she compares this widely Protestant practice with the Catholic sacrament. And she even asserts that some eaters actually took confessions from the dying. But was sin-eating a genuine practice? And this is where things become a tad awkward because I read plenty of articles which just were like, yep, it was absolutely this and they're really matter-of-fact about it. But Jane Aron in her book Welsh Gothic makes the point that Aubrey's 1686 manuscript wasn't actually published until 1881 and sin-eaters don't pop up in literature until after this point. She does point to an 1836 collection, The Mountain Decameron, by London-born surgeon Joseph Downes. And in it, Downes records a supposedly true tale by a traveller in Cardiganshire, in which he encountered a Sin Yet Aaron treats his collection as a literary work, not one of factual encounters. And on top of that, she does actually point out there are surprisingly few references to Sin before Aubrey's work became known. So this is basically that period between 1686, when he wrote it, and 1881, when it was published... There's not really that many references, so where would Aubrey get the practice from if it wasn't widely recorded? Well, for Aaron, Aubrey's interest in Old Testament practices could have led him to misinterpret existing funeral rites, and she gives a few examples of customs practiced in Wales at funerals, and yet these pre-1881 publications don't actually mention them in the context of eating and following the 1881 publication of Aubrey's text, the concept of sin-eating finally took off. And considering the fact that a lot of people took their lead from Aubrey's text and kind of treated it as, like, the main thing about sin-eating, how many otherwise ordinary customs ended up being lumped in with sin-eating? Aaron also notes the work of Wirt Serks, who published British Goblins, Welsh folklore, fairy mythology, legends and traditions in 1880, and he also found very little evidence of sin-eating in Welsh records. So was Aubrey wrong or was something else going on? But before we answer that, let's have a look at why sin eaters were necessary in the first place. So why would people be so keen to get rid of their sins? I mean, it might have occurred to people once or twice to just not commit any. But if you want to get into heaven, you needed your soul to be as clean as possible. And that obviously then meant cleaning the muck of sins away. And having someone take them on after you died would free your soul to pass into heaven more easily. This is obviously in the period after The switch from Catholicism to Protestantism, where previously you could confess your sins to a priest and he could absolve you of them. Whereas once you then get to Protestantism, you're kind of carrying your sins around with you for the rest of your life. Unless, in this case, you can then get a sin eater to take them on after you've died. And as with many rituals, the sin eater had a specific prayer to recite while eating. I give easement and rest now to thee, dear man. Come not down the lanes or in our meadows, and for thy peace I pawn my own soul. Amen. So yes, the sin eater is pawning their own soul to help the dead find peace. But look at that second sentence, come not down the lanes or in our meadows. Basically, the families didn't want their loved ones returning from the grave, which they might do if they didn't get into heaven or lose the dead weight of their sins. So why don't sin appear in records very often? Let's go back to our earlier dilemma, the validity of Aubrey's original work. Did he make sin up or did he misinterpret an existing custom to fit his theory? Or is there another reason why they don't appear in the records very often? Well, due to the religious climate of the day, only the church could officially absolve anyone of sin, and sin was actually illegal and carried the death penalty. So even employing a sin could see you branded a heretic. So it's entirely possible that the rituals described that don't overtly mention sin were tailored to suit the climate, and those involved knew what was going on, but chose not to make it explicit. And this is certainly proposed by Jane Aaron, who also goes one step further. And she asserts that the religious turmoil even explains why the custom seems to disappear between its supposed pagan origins and Aubrey's time. So from before Catholicism comes in to the, the time when it's then no longer the official religion of England, you don't get any reference to it at all. But then once the church switched from Catholicism to Protestantism, people held on to sin eating as a substitute for deathbed confessions. And despite the hazy nature of reports, Aaron does conclude that Aubrey didn't invent sin-eating, he simply wrote at a time when it reappeared after a long absence. And given the apparent need for secrecy, I'm inclined to agree with her. So what kind of people became sin-eaters? Put simply, mourners usually turn to the very poor, and they would provide the service for a few pennies and a free meal. And in some areas, such as Monmouthshire and Wales, a professional sin-eater even toured the funerals. Not especially popular, they did provide a vital job and if you ask the believers, the sin actually became more evil every time they ate a sin. Now they were valued for their ability to keep the dead from coming back but the local community basically shunned them and one superstition claimed that it was a bad omen to even look one in the eye. And Bernard Puckle notes that sin eaters lived in remote places and often cut themselves off from social contact and villagers would only seek them out after a death occurred. And people so hated the sin eaters that they might even burn any utensils that they'd use to eat the food. That said, if you think the idea of buying a cleansed soul for your loved one is a little bit icky, sin eaters weren't the only professionals paid for their services at funerals. Puckle also points to the whalers which are women hired to show emotional grief at funerals. And they did this to make sure that the dead didn't misinterpret any emotional restraint and come back for vengeance. So these women basically showed the dead that, yes, people were sad that they'd gone. So why did the practice of sin-eating die out? Well, the last known sin-eater actually died in 1906. And Richard Munslow was a well-respected farmer in Shropshire, so he really books the trend. So instead of being this poor person or this poverty-stricken individual living on the edge of the community, he was really quite embedded in the community. And he largely took to sin-eating as an act of kindness to his neighbours, even though the practice had otherwise died out by the mid-19th century. And according to Marie Creft, he lost four of his children, including three within the same week in 1870. Now, we'll never know for sure why Monslow took to sin eating, but Kreft speculates that he did so to help his children into heaven. And Jane Aron notes how the custom now largely appears in American folklore and literature, and she speculates how familiar people are with its Welsh origins, and indeed how unfamiliar the Welsh sometimes can be with the custom, even though they basically started it. And indeed, we can only speculate why the practice as a whole died out. Perhaps in a more secular age, the need to have sins cleansed is less of a pressing issue. And we have very different interactions with the dead now, since they're usually cared for away from the home. But you can't keep a good piece of folklore down. And instead, the sin has passed into popular culture. The late, great Heath Ledger starred in the Sinita in 2003, and John Noble also played a cinita in the Sleepy Hollow TV series. I'm pretty sure he was in the first series, and then your discovery's not actually who he says he is, but that's irrelevant. It's just the fact that it's really important to the plot that he's a cinita. And a whole raft of novels have the Cinita in their title. And to be honest with you, if popular culture is anything to go by, then the cinita is here to stay. So that is the end of this week's episode on sin eating. I hope you found it interesting. It was quite difficult to research because everybody's kind of just echoing each other. And a lot of the articles that I found were very definitive on, oh, there were this kind of person, there were that kind of person, there were other kind of person. And then when you actually look for records, you're like, oh, there's actually not a huge amount of evidence to back a lot of this up. But as I say, it could well be that if you were trying to hide the fact that you were using sin eating because it was illegal, then you wouldn't exactly write it down, would you? So, obviously, bear that in mind. As I say, you do get them quite a lot in other forms of culture. And on my blog post that goes with this episode, there's actually the cover of the 1938 December issue of Weird Tales. And they had a story by J.G. G. Pendorves called The Sinita. So, it'd be quite interesting to see what that's actually about. Anyway, that is the end of Siniting. We will be looking at Spring Jack. I thought I'd save the best for last because he's fascinating for the end of Freaky February. And then, as I said at the beginning of the episode, We're going into Fortune telling for March. If you've got any requests for April, please feel free to tweet me, send me a message on Instagram, send me an email, whatever's easiest for you. And I'll hopefully try and be able to fit that in. So that is the end of this week's episode. As always, I appreciate any tweets, any Instagram posts, anything like that about the podcast. It always shows me that you're enjoying what you're hearing. Obviously, iTunes reviews are always nice because that basically tells the algorithm to publicise the, the, the show better so more people can find it. So when people keep asking you to leave a review of a show on, well, it's actually Apple Podcasts now, not iTunes. When people ask you to leave a review, it's literally just to help people find it and the way the algorithm works and everything like that. And it's also nice to hear that you're enjoying the show as well, to be honest. So with that in mind, I will leave you to the rest of your day, whatever it is you're doing. I hope it's a fabulous one.